0: It's the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America. The National Security Hour exposes the wolves in sheep's clothing and their nefarious plots to undermine
1: and destroy U.S. national security. Welcome to the National Security Hour on AmericanOutlaw.News, the radio network on iHeartRadio where you will hear voices of freedom and the out loud truth. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel Sargis Gary, U.S. Army Retired, CEO of the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement, founder of United Assistant Appeal and the host of New Paradigms with Sorgerson Gary that can be seen every Monday live and is broadcast on Right American Media. I wanna welcome our guest today, our guest Kenneth R. Timmerman who is a political writer and a conservative activist who was the 2012 Republican nominee for U.S. Representative for the newly redrawn Maryland's 8th Congressional District. He is currently, at the same time, uh, the uh, Executive Director of the Foundation of Democracies in Iran, an organization that works to support democratic movements in Iran. And he has written also on the spread of weapons of mass destruction in the Middle East. It is uh, good to have him here. I want to make sure our viewers understand that uh, as we continue our discussion with Kenneth that uh, American Out Loud talk radio plays on the iHeart Radio network. You can also listen on our media players from any web browser anywhere in the world. We have the best-in-class apps available on Apple, Android, and Alexa, where we stream 24-7. And now you can also hear them on the podcast on these same apps. Kennedy, it's good to have you here. I know last time me and you uh, actually talked to each other was uh, in a parking lot somewhere in D.C. where you were signing the book over to me. And then, of course, with everything that is happening in the Middle East, we've been just uh, too busy to get back uh, to Sanana and have a discussion face to face. But I'm glad we we're able to get you here today.
0: Well, I'm glad to be here with you, Sargis. Thanks for having me on.
1: It, uh tell our audience a bit about yourself. I know that uh, you've gone a long ways from um, initially being, uh, um, I would say, left of the center uh, on the political aisle in um, uh, France and then uh, ending up somehow in a prison in uh, Lebanon and having a different focus. But tell us how your journey initially started and why you are where you are today.
0: Well, that's right. I mean, I I wasn't on the left in the beginning. I was a product of the 60s and the 70s. I questioned authority uh, uh, and kind of made me a natural uh, leftist at that time. And then uh, I came back after 18 years uh, overseas working as a war correspondent, uh, investigative reporter, went to work for Tom Lantos, a Democrat from California, on weapons of mass destruction, which had become my specialty at that point, uh, having spent many, many, uh, gone many, many times to Iraq before the first Gulf war and met the heads of their missile programs and nuclear weapons programs. And, uh, I discovered in the, in the nineties that those same qualities that had made me a leftist, uh, young, as a young man now made me a conservative, uh, and, and, uh, So I wound up, uh, I was fired by Mr. Lantos for investigating communist China, U.S. uh, exports to communist China. And uh, ultimately, I was fired also by Time Magazine for investigating U.S. exports under the Clinton administration to communist China. And that was a wake up call for me. I I realized that uh, the world of journalism was not what I thought it was when I was a uh, younger reporter uh, as uh, somebody who had worked on. Uh, the exposing both the nuclear weapons programs in Iraq and Iran in the 80s and the 90s, um, I was uh, feted by people like Dan Rather, by Mike Wallace. I was on CBS 60 Minutes several times. I was on ABC Nightline, uh, all of the uh, what we used to call mainstream TV magazine shows. And then all of a sudden, once I was exposing the Clinton administration for selling off strategic military technology to communist China, in the 90s, I was banned uh, from all of those same uh, formerly mainstream organizations and went to work for the American Spectator, Reader's Digest and others. But I tell all of this story uh, in my latest book, which is called And the Rest is History, Tales of Hostages, Arms Dealers, Dirty Tricks and Spies, which you can find at my personal website, Ken or obviously at uh, Amazon or online booksellers. So that's kind of a a pocket image of who I am and where I came from. As I said, the longer version of that story is in the book, and the rest is history.
1: Well, no, I mean, it's an interesting book, and I think it's, uh, um, you know, people say uh, jail changes, folks. And I think when you're in a Lebanese prison, not knowing if you're going to be killed or not, it does change your perspective on the reality of what you're dealing with. And as you, I think you've called it uh, the Lebanese logic where they would just take anybody randomly out and shoot them for no reason it seemed but you mentioned the clintons when i was in the service at that time of course u.s uh, army infantry um it was the first time we received a briefing where the chinese were now able to develop their abilities to conduct airfield seizures which was a type of mission and we still have it as a mission set for our rangers a special unit that does that. But uh, given the technology that uh, the Clinton shared with the uh, Chinese Communist Party and the PLA, it uh, allowed them to be able to uh, somewhat catch up to where we are today. And I know that historically, U.S. has in the past uh, done a lot of uh, sharing of technologies um, in order for the adversaries that we have be able to provoke us uh, nationally to get to a stage where we can actually counter them. Uh, so it's unfortunate, but it is a way that the uh, U.S. Uh, systems and especially when you're talking about the uh, uh, major weapon uh, distributors are the ones that actually drive the train on this. But I did want to kind of focus on where we are today, uh, specifically with Iran and what you're doing with the Foundation for Democracies in Iran, uh, especially given the fact that we're just at the anniversary of Amini's the uh, uh, being killed in custody, uh, which was on 16 September, and there were going to be uh, protests in Iran and uh, across the country. And uh, specifically, even her her father was uh, taken into custody on that day and released. But uh, where are we today with um, anything that we are doing or whether or not there's a U.S. support for these type of movements uh, that are against the current regime?
0: Well, unfortunately, there is no U.S. government support for the pro-freedom movement inside Iran today under uh, the Biden administration, just as there was none uh, under Obama. Remember, in 2009, after uh, a failed presidential election in Iran, uh, there were millions of people on the streets of Tehran and other major cities, and uh, they were chanting for Obama. You know, can't you hear us, Obama? Uh, uh, Listen to us, Obama. And for three weeks, Obama said nothing. And in the end, when he did finally address the protests in Iran, these millions and millions of people in the Green Movement, he said it is uh, uh, not our role as the United States government to get involved in Iranian domestic politics. And we have a bad history of having done so in the past. He apologized uh, essentially for having the U.S. having done uh unspeakable things to the Iranian regime in the past. Biden is no different. And and Biden has not uh, uh, helped the pro-freedom movement. They have been calling on the U.S. for a year now, as you mentioned, uh, to help them, to give them technology, to uh, uh, put restrictions on Iranian uh, leaders. Uh, they have just allowed Raisi, the president, to address the United Nations. That's an obscenity, in my view, in itself. Uh, and, of course, he used that platform to blast the United States. And God bless the Israeli ambassador for standing up and holding up a picture of Masa Amini in the hall of the United Nations. He was evicted by guards, by U.N. guards for having done so. Shame on them. Um, look, there, there are I, I believe that the people of Iran have woken up in many ways like the people in our country have woken up to the tyranny uh, that they are facing every day. And this movement that has was launched with the, uh, m- the murder of Masa Amini in prison uh, is now, uh, has, has kind of fulfilled all of the uh, gaps that I have been talking about and working with, uh, with friends and groups inside Iran for many, many years. Uh, the reason the Green Movement failed was because it was a movement of Tehran-centered intellectuals. It was a movement of, of Persian speakers and Persian nationals, if you wish. And, and what they had failed to do in 2009 was to engage the Kurds, to engage the Baluchis, to get engage the Abazis, this 50 percent minority, majority in Iran. People don't realize that they don't realize that iran is a minority majority country in other words the kurds the baluchs the azeris the lurs the rest of them make up about 50% of the country uh and and the green movement never engaged them this movement that began a year ago has so now you have demonstrations in iranian kurdistan in iranian baluchistan in in avaz in the south west of the country along the border with iraq it is truly a national movement of all the people who make up Iran this this uh, uh I don't want to call it a melting pot because it is not uh the the um uh, and it, but there are so many different ethnic minorities in Iran who all identify as Iranian and all of them now have taken to the streets i think it is a matter of time before uh they do get the better of the regime but it will be bloody uh, before it ends it will be bloody before it ends
1: it will be bloody, but it's not just in Iran. Um, I know that um, Iran um, had certain warnings uh, prior to the 16th of September, that uh, timeline anniversary coming up uh, to both the Iraqi government and the Kurdish-Iraqi North uh, government, um, that if you do not clear out the individuals who are doing cross-border operations into uh, our territory, that we are going to start our attacks on 15th September. And three days prior to that, both the Kurdish uh, regional government in the north of Iraq, uh, and who is administering that area, and also the uh, the government of um, uh, Baghdad, started actually rounding up individuals, uh, whether it be Kurds or or um, uh, Iranians or even uh, uh, Shia um, um, counter. To the iranian government and was trying to move them somewhere in the middle of the country really not knowing what to do with them but they knew that they couldn't keep those individuals in um, Erbil, uh and northern iraq or other places now with that said um, i know that uh, we got videos of the caches that uh, these counters to the iranian government were blowing up because they didn't want to have either the Iranian government or the Kurdish government get their hands on it because we are unsure if some of the Kurdish groups that are loyal in Iraq to the Iranian regime were going to go ahead and share those weapon systems with the Iranian government. But uh, the fact that Iran can counter into Iraq against um, individuals that we believe are, ally- are allies or we have shed 20 years of blood um, says that they have a pretty much of a far reach. Um, with Iran having that capability, and uh, um, United States also allowing him to have a platform at the UN to speak, um, why do you think that Obama, prior to even uh, really being a nominee from the Democratic side for uh, uh, the presidential nominee on the Democratic side, why do you think he made the decision to meet with the Iranian leadership prior? to him being nominated. Um, Is there something you know historically from that read that you could share with our audience?
0: Well, I think that uh, Obama, just like Biden, has historically been, uh, there's a left wing in the Democrat Party that has historically been uh, very favorable to the regime in Tehran. And uh, Biden, uh, people forget this, but in 2002, when he was still a United States senator, he was the keynote speaker at the very first annual uh, fundraising dinner given by the pro-Tehran lobbying group, uh, the National Iranian uh, American Council, NIAC, uh, a group which my, my friends in the Iranian community absolutely despise precisely because it is a pro-Tehran uh, voice in Washington. And so you've had people on the left wing of the Democrat Party for, for all of this time who have been pro-Tehran regime, Um, the values that they share are anti-American values. Uh, If you listen to the regime leaders today, they say that the United States will cease to exist, just as Israel will cease to to exist. They see a world without America. And I think you have leaders in the Democrat Party who also believe that America will cease to exist as we know it today. Uh, When you have a governor in New Mexico, for example, who says that uh, I have the authority, I have the power to suspend the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution, it's a pretty scary thing. But that is the kind of value that those leaders share with uh, the leaders of the Islamic regime in Tehran.
1: Well, uh, look, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's unfortunate, but it's a reality of what we're dealing with. I don't think the United States had a foreign policy uh, when it came to Iran going back now to when Ayatollah Khomeini came into power. I mean, you yourself know that I left Iran. i um, a Christian Assyrian, but we all left Iran because there was going to be no future for us. Um, and fortunately, I had the opportunity to come here, uh, become a U.S. citizen, and serve as an army officer, retiring as a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army Infantry and Special Operational Forces. Um, the reality is, is that that geographic location is very vital not just to us from the u.s standpoint but at the same time to the uh, uh, nations like china and also russia and i do want to make sure as we uh, approach the second segment that we're going to have uh, maybe to focus on the uh, iran joining the Shanghai corporation organization what is uh, china's role um in uh, the middle east through iran and uh, possibly looking at uh, what is the future for us if the current administration is still pursuing a no new JCPOA with Iran, and uh, part of it is being able to give them the uh, billions of dollars that we just gave to them for the uh, release of just five of our hostages. Not to say that uh, you know nobody is unhappy that our hostages are back. God bless them for everything they had to deal with, but the reality of How that money might be used and uh, why is it that everybody's kind of swooning over this uh, country called Iran, given all the trouble that has caused for us within the region. So we'll continue our discussion with uh, Kenneth R. Timmerman, who is uh, the um, executive director of the Foundation of Democracies for Iran uh, and uh, or in Iran, I should say. And um, uh, I want to make sure our audience know, again, all of our, my shows on the podcast typically uh, appear one or two days after the podcast is heard on talk radio. You can also hear them on Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, and on Howard podcast and many more. Be sure you subscribe and rate the show and Apple Podcasts for me. We will return with our second segment soon. World-class care from doctors you can trust Join a healthcare system that puts your health and well being above the interest of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be with a company that shares your values. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness.
0: How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with CoFixRx. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX Throat Spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. HealthyCell.com, code out loud.
1: Welcome back to the National Security Hour and our second segment of our discussion with Kenneth R. Timmerman, who is the Executive Director of the Foundation for Democracies in Iran. Uh, Ken, before we uh, uh, finish our last segment, I, I did uh, lay out a number of issues that we have to deal with when we're looking at Iran when it comes to the JCPOA, when it comes to the Shanghai Corporation Organization, uh, and Iran being part of it, which is led by China. Um, From your perspective, uh, where does Iran now currently rank, if you could rank it, on the priorities for the United States when it comes to foreign policy, whether it be this administration or whoever is going to be the following administration?
0: Well, the Iranian regime uh, has a great gift for being a terrific nuisance to U.S. politicians. Uh, they Remember, uh, they helped Jimmy Carter to lose because of the hostage crisis to Ronald Reagan. Uh, Ronald Reagan himself uh, got into trouble with the Iran-Contra uh, deals uh, with the Iranian regime. Uh, Bill Clinton tried to make peace with him in 2000, the very end of his um, uh, administration and failed. Uh, and uh, again, the, the uh, Democrats seem to be uh, placating the Iranian regime and also to get um, the short End of the stick to have problems with the Iranian regime, so I think that what Biden is trying to do with the hostage payment, uh, the ransom payment, this uh, six billion dollars in money that was released from Iranian frozen funds in South Korea is essentially to make the uh, make Iran go away. Uh, he he wants Iran to become a non-issue. Uh, for 2024. He does not want to see the Iranians making trouble around the world. He doesn't want to see Iranian terrorist attacks. He doesn't want to see um, Iran threatening the United States or taking more hostages. And if those things happen, which I believe they will, the Biden people are going to just sweep them under the carpet. Uh, I mean, you had just yesterday, you had uh, uh, Tony Blinken, who was... uh, uh, talking to the Iraqi um, uh, Prime Minister at the UN General Assembly, and he was saying, uh, "You know, we 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 we're we're very happy to see that uh, uh, you you all have been rounding up Kurdish anti Iranian regime Kurdish activists, uh, and that's a wonderful thing to do. This is just outrageous uh, for for this to happen. So I think the Biden people want to see Iran." become a non-issue they don't want it on the front pages and and they've essentially bribed the iranian regime to keep quiet for the next 18 months
1: well look uh, when i initially uh, was asked about the jcpoa joint comprehensive uh, plan of action i i told them the folks that were asking me i said look um, it's more of an economic agreement than it is a uh, nuclear agreement given the fact that we were trying to strike that deal at that time where the current uh, President Obama was somewhat trying to save Europe from the disaster it was facing economically. Uh, but of course, uh, it didn't really work out because uh, and the first companies that went to Iran to meet with the Iranian government were, of course, our oil companies. Um, and then following those companies, the Europeans had an opportunity to go there. But the European companies would go there, pay protesters on the street money to protest uh, in front of the uh, uh, buildings where they were having meetings uh, with uh, Iranian officials or Iranian businessmen mm-hmm. working on behalf of those officials to try to strike deals for Europe, and of course the chance from those Iranian protests was debt to America, and the Europeans were turning around saying, "Well, look, uh, I mean, uh, you can hear your own people saying debt to America," instead of having uh, deals struck by the uh, your companies with uh, American companies. Why don't you have the American companies come through us? So they basically become a a, a company that works uh, for us and through us, which caused a lot of issues between the U.S. companies and European companies. But it was really more of an economic deal. And look, uh, at the same time, though, I guess my question would be here, uh, Iran being in a geographic location where it has effects on us in Iraq, um, and you saw... Uh, even in Afghanistan, initial targetings that we received uh, for the Bush campaign against uh, the Taliban when initially after nine eleven were really from the Iranians. Uh, and then we turned around and uh, we left Afghanistan, uh, which is a troubled nation that Iran has influence in. And uh, uh, I- Iraq, which we believe is our piece of the pie um iran can at any given time even put a missile right in the uh, backyard of the home of the prime minister of iraq and he has to release the, uh, their uh, uh, iranian line militias that are operating in iraq uh, iran is bombing uh, areas in northern iraq uh, which is under the kurdish regional government uh control and administration and can move in and do any operation wants. It's actually giving um, drones to the Russians and has built a factory to build those drones to use against the Ukrainians. Given all that, can we somehow still not work with the current Iranian regime and be able to have influence on Iran? What would be your way and means of dissecting are issues that we have with Iran and all the nations around Iran from Afghanistan to Pakistan to to Iraq that are tied to Iran's influence somehow?
0: Well, the, the Iranian regime uh, exercises malign influence throughout the world. Uh, they are supporting the Houthis in Yemen. They're supporting Hezbollah in, in Lebanon. They're supporting Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad uh, in the uh, in in the Palestinian areas against Israel, uh, they're supporting um, the Syrian regime as well. So they exert a, a malign influence. They're they're subverting the government in Iraq, as you mentioned. They're they're operating across the border in. Kurdish, uh, in the Kurdish zones in northern Iraq. You know, I've been along that border many, many times, Sorry, I've been uh, visiting uh, with the uh, Iranian Pajak. It's the uh, Kurdish group that is uh, um, uh, opposing the Iranian regime. I've been to their camps along the border. I've looked at uh, the Revolutionary Guards posts way up in the mountains, 13,000 feet in the Kandil mountains there, uh, looking down into the valleys, trying to figure out what we were doing, what the Kurds were doing, and I as their guest, there as, as a reporter, uh, were doing. Uh, so it is a it is a volatile situation. The best solution in my view, and it's something I've worked on for well over 20 years, is to empower the Iranian people to get rid of this regime. If you draw, if you extract this regime from the region, it would be a totally different place. Just just imagine for a moment if the malign influence of the Iranian regime no longer existed uh, in the Palestinian territories. Do you think the Palestinians would have the wherewithal to launch missiles against Israel? They would not. Imagine if you withdrew that malign influence from the Houthis. They'd be making peace tomorrow with Saudi Arabia and with the Yemeni government. Imagine if you withdrew Iranian support for Hezbollah. Lebanon might actually Begin to exist as a sovereign country ruled by its own people. It would be amazing. So, this regime is a malign influence. The only solution for it is not to talk to them. The solution is to get rid of them and to help the Iranian people to get rid of them. That is really, I I believe, and that's what I've been working on for 25 years to try to empower Iranian groups to come together, first of all, to work together uh, in, in a grand Uh, Opposition coalition, and then to have a coordinated action that would ultimately lead to the end of the regime.
1: Why do you think that is so difficult um, for um, different administrations to execute? You mentioned even from Reagan, who was dealing with him, even uh, the previous POTUS, President Trump, when we had sanctions, some of the toughest sanctions against Iran, he kept the port of Charbahar open for the Indians to build a railhead, developed that port, uh, build a railhead into Afghanistan, which put pressure on Pakistan to bring the Taliban to the table. But why is it that it's so difficult if there's such a movement in Iran against the current regime for us to be able to just show a backbone from various different administrations in support of those uh, regime change uh, capabilities? Uh, is there something well- that we're not seeing?
0: Uh, Well, uh, look, what you hear constantly from Washington, and this regardless of the administration, fair enough, Republican or Democrat, is that the opposition in Iran is not united. There's no single leader of the opposition. They're looking for the Ayatollah Khomeini of the opposition. Some people think that uh, uh, Reza Pahlavi, the son of the former Shah, is that person I've known Reza for well over 20 years. And while I have a great deal of respect for him and affection for him and his family, uh, he uh, is not a particularly courageous individual. He's a very eloquent speaker in both uh, English and Persian. He also is quite articulate in French, uh, spends a lot of time in France, uh, but he is not a physically courageous person. And he's somebody who also believed in consensus leadership and that's not a bad thing. He believes in achieving a consensus. You've seen him much more on the international scene in the past two years, I would say, uh, trying to build that consensus, working with people uh, not from his political background, working from people on the left uh, as well as the as the political right in Iran. But that is what the government in that's what the Washington establishment will tell you uh, is that the opposition is not united, and therefore we can't really support them. Uh, I say to them uh look, it, it's 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 you're playing a game of chicken and the egg. Uh, if you support the people that you can see today and the groups that you can see today and really support them with technology, uh, political support, recognition of uh, bringing them to Congress, uh, bringing them to the State Department, for example, if you do those things, guess what's going to happen to the opposition? It is going to coalesce around those people, but we have never had the courage to do so. The State Department doesn't want to rock the boat. And I'm afraid also that there are too many of these cozy backdoor deals being made. I mean, of all of that $6 billion, just like the 1.7 billion that Obama gave in cash uh, towards the end of his administration, you have to wonder how much of that has wandered off into the coffers of American politicians.
1: Yeah, usually does come back, um, and it's unfortunate, but that's just the reality of it. Um, but um, as you were mentioning, um, you know that the the Kurds in Iraq were at each other's throat; they still are. I mean, they've killed each other into the tune of thousands. Uh, But uh, U.S. government put pressure on them, brought them to the table, and still tells them, even today, uh, under the Biden administration, if you want further support for your cause, as Iraq seems like to be imploding on itself, that uh, you need to unite. Otherwise, we're not going to fund you anymore, like we were covering your funding because uh, you were in either getting the money from Baghdad or you were not managing the money the way it should have been. Uh, But it hasn't seem to have want to do that with the Iranian opposition. Um, Even our allies, though, I would ask the question here, is where is their standing? Whether it be the United Kingdom or others. I know that um, we have not allowed visas for Iranian students uh, to really come here and be educated. But uh, Britain has opened up their uh, channels with Iran and um, pretty much the regular army, we would say, not the... uh, uh, regime force structures that are there to protect the regime in Iran their kids are all uh, major and above in rank uh, are all going to UK are studying getting their further degrees even if there's a change in the regime oh I, I had uh, stated this to folks out of DC tomorrow I said uh, even if there is uh, the people are gonna counter all U.S Iranian, regime personnel who might want to go back there to rebuild the country is going to be probably these individuals who are tied with their allegiance to the uk uh who are going to be the future officers in the iranian military um where is this uh, uh as far as the chinks in the armor possibly between our nato and european allies in the u.s when it comes to what the future would be after regime change is there or are they all united given the fact they all sat at the table and signed an agreement with Iran uh, across the table from them when it came to the JCPOA?
0: Well, I've never seen much unity uh, in Europe, uh, (laughs) either when it comes to Iran, when it comes to Iraq, Uh, when it comes to Ukraine. uh, There's a great, you know, there, there, there are different factions, there are different groups inside the European Union, inside NATO. And I think it's pretty much every man for himself or every country for itself. Uh, Interestingly, it's been some of the smaller European countries, um, Sweden, Norway, uh, in particular, uh, to a certain extent, Finland and Holland, who have opened up to the pro-freedom movement in Iran, who've tried to extend some uh, recognition and help to the pro-freedom movement in Iran. Uh, So uh, there is some hope there. Uh, When you talk to Iranians about Britain. However, I think there's a great deal of suspicion and uh, distaste for Great Britain among, um, especially the supporters of the Shah uh, in uh, Iran, both inside Iran and and those living in exile. Uh, they believe in great British conspiracy theories. They've seen uh, the British. They believe that the British were behind Ayatollah. I- Ayatollah Khomeini in 1979, and were backing the re- revolution against the Shah. Uh, so, uh, you know, they may be sending officers there to get training, but there is still this underlying suspicion. By the way, I've got to say, um, historically, there's been a great deal of suspicion of uh, amongst Iranians with Russia as well. Uh, remember, the Russians historically have played a very big role in Iran. They came in after World War II, in particular. I- they were there for they they crushed the first Iranian uh, um, democratic revolution. In 1907, they came in with the Cossacks and and uh, and, and finally crushed the, the democratic government that had been set up and that the Shah was tolerating. But they came back in after World War II, the Russians did, and occupied um, uh, the uh, northwestern part of the country, Kurdistan, Azerbaijan, uh, inside Iran, those provinces. And uh, we came close to a nuclear war with them under the Truman administration with Russia because of their occupation of Iran. So there's a great deal of mistrust between the Iranians and, and and the Russians, and yet, and yet, you have uh, this these deals that are being done between Russia and Iran, which are very important. I think they're historic, uh, as important and the, as the deals being made between China and the Iranian regime. So that's something. Those are things that I think uh, that may actually change the long-term strategic landscape. Both those countries, Russia and China, are trying to preserve the Iranian regime and uh, uh, that's something that i think we should we should maybe get into a little bit more uh in the next segment if we have time
1: no definitely because the elephant in the room is a Shanghai corporation organization led by china was trying to do within the region and uh um, it, it's funny you mentioned uh with uh i don't think a lot of people know the history with world war ii where um russia basically was controlling the north and when we threatened that we we're going to use w- nuclear weapons against them they did have their military leave the northern Iran. However, their diplomats stayed, and actually the first Kurdish state that was ever established in the history was a communist Kurdish state under Barzani's grandfather, who was being advised by the Russians at that time. Now, uh, the Iranian military forces struck against the uh, uh, Iran's northwest region or Azerbaijan territory uh, Azerbaijan Sharqi and, and were able to defeat them the the Kurds at least fought low, for a little bit but uh, Barzani's um, family members uh, uh the grandparents actually escaped into into um, uh, Russia and they took a phone call with a connection with a uh, Christian Assyrian dentist that uh, allowed a phone call uh and a possible uh, Uh, allowance for them to travel from Russia into Iraq, into northern Iraq in the future. But uh, that's another historical lesson maybe we could talk about in the future and offline. I do want to make sure that our our viewers uh, understand that uh, uh, be sure to make Americanoutlaw.com your daily stop for the latest news and happenings. Uh, we all must do our part and share the stories or articles and videos so that we can help secure America's future. So please share the information and code this podcast with Kenneth R. Timmerman, who is uh, the executive director of Foundations for Democracies in Iran. And we will come back in our third segment and we will focus on the Shanghai Corporation Organization and what is the future going to be to counter that ability in China's uh, network in the Middle East through the Iranian proxies.
0: America Out Loud news.
1: Liberty and justice for all. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. This is Jodi O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. Welcome back to the final segment of our discussion on the National Security Hour on the American Outlaw News. Um, you can find out more about my show and uh, get all the latest podcasts if you go to the menu navigation bar at AmericanOutloud.com. Again, that's at AmericanOutloud.com. Under our show or schedule, you will be in the know. Again, we will continue our discussion with Kenneth R. Timmerman, who is uh, the executive director of the Foundation for Democracies in Iran. And I think the focus that we were looking at was Elephant in the Room, which is the Shanghai Corporation Organization, which really Iran became a signatorial to going back a year ago. Uh, and um, uh, it took 15 years for them from the time they had put their application in, but uh, the major piece that was significant in the discussion was where uh, Xi Jinping stated that um, this should drive a smoother Afghanistan transition, which means that Iran was very key in uh, having a hand in Afghanistan itself. And truly, unless I'm wrong, uh, Ken, I believe that Iran's effects in Iraq and Iran's effects and of in Afghanistan had a lot to do with why the U.S. missions have not been successful in those two countries. But I would like to know your take on it.
0: Well, you know, uh, up until the uh, uh, killing of Qasem Soleimani, the Iranians uh, directly controlled the government in Iraq. They still have a great deal of influence and they, and, and they control certain ministries. But uh, Soleimani was really the master of the Iraqi government. He was the person, he was the head of the Quds Force, remember, that uh, oversees expeditionary arm of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps uh, in Iran. And he is the one who would essentially determine who becomes this minister, who becomes that minister, who runs this uh, administration. Uh, for a number of years, the Quds uh, Force was getting a cut, excuse me, from every Iraqi bank they were getting a cut of their foreign exchange float, uh, which amounted to roughly a billion dollars per month off books into their coffers. So the Quds Force was getting this enormous, enormous cash cash influx from Iraq every month. Now, I don't know if they still have that going on today. The current leader of the Quds Force is nowhere near as powerful as influential or as charismatic as Qas- Qasem Soleimani was. And I am—I uh, I think that uh, the the decision by President Trump to take him out was courageous, was absolutely the right thing to do. And it went up against the State Department, um, many people in the Pentagon who didn't want him to do it. They were afraid of Iranian government retaliation and they had never retaliated. And at the time I said they would not retaliate and I said they would not retaliate for this reason, is that uh, it has been my experience looking at this regime for 40 years. Uh, and I write some of this in my book, and the rest is history. You can also go to my website and read my, my many, many articles about Iran at kentimmerman.com. Uh, I have seen over the past 40 years of this regime that when they are hit and hit hard, they back off. But we don't do that very often. The last time we did it was President Reagan in uh, 1987 and 88, when he he um, uh, there were confrontations between the Iranian Navy and the U.S. Navy, and in a single 12-hour battle, we sunk one third of the Iranian Navy, and uh, and that was it for for some time. So, I I believe with the killing of Soleimani, it was the same kind of moment. The Iranians were challenging us and if we did not strike back hard they would continue to challenge us and continue to kill americans we hit them hard by taking out soleimani and they did nothing so i think that's 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 an important lesson for us to learn
1: it is a lesson for us to learn but again we go back to where they take a hit we come back uh and it seems like they reset the stage um and again i understand where iran says geographically uh, which makes it a very viable location for folks to work through or to have influence on. But I'm not sure why it is easier maybe for uh, China and others to include the Russians, as you said, are forging a new relationship with Iran um, than for us across administrations to be able to forge that same relationship with the Iranian government. Um Uh, Look, uh, you know yourself that, uh, you know, China uses Iran to expand its footprint throughout the entire Middle East. It may not have its people on the ground, uh, but it does. Um, I, I mean, the only way that China has people on the ground, and even now, even in northern Iraq, They're teaching Mandarin Chinese to the Kurds in their universities. I'm sure they're not doing that because they want the Kurds in the future be be an ally with the U.S. They want to make sure that they flip them towards their side so there's an economic ties with the Chinese. At the same time, the uh, explosion that took place in the port in um, Lebanon, uh, we found out that there's a lot of missile fuel for missiles that are Chinese design, Uh, with uh, especially my company doing an assessment in Africa, we realize that it comes through those lines. Where is all this tied in? It is really Iran walking the uh, dirt, but on behalf of the Chinese. Um, Why is it that we are not able, in the US, economically, not just politically, to counter these resets that Iran pushes? Is it because our Uh, economic ties are so uh, embedded with China that is a major influencer on Iran to the SEO, or is it something that we're not seeing?
0: I think it's very difficult for American presidents and American administrations to conduct strategy. Uh, Our whole system is uh, essentially geared towards tactics, the tactics of winning elections every two years for the Congress, every four years for the presidency, every six years for the Senate. Uh, We do not think long-term, we don't think in terms of strategy. The Russians have been looking towards Iran For two hundred (laughs) years, they have been gazing towards the Persian Gulf, the warm seas, for two hundred years, and uh, you know they have been wooing this regime since the very beginning. Uh, In fact, I wrote my very first book, which uh, came out in 1987, was syndicated by the New York Times. uh, Was about you know part of it was about the Russian influence in Iran, how they uh, had helped with the revolution. They assisted the revolutionaries in the very beginning against the Shah, and then bit by bit, they were pushing their pieces. Um, In my book, And the Rest is History, I talk about the Russian effort to build a new Iranian air force with Soviet uh, equipment. This was in the 80s. Uh, Part of Iran-Contra was an initiative by the Reagan administration to counter that, uh, and that is not very well known to the public. That's the story that I tell in, and and the rest is history because I got to know many of the, the arms dealers who were involved uh, and got their stories. But there was also a strategic initiative to block the Soviet advance into Iran. And we lost, we failed to do that. That was in already in 84, 85, 86, the Russians were moving forward. It took them another 10 years to sign a major arms deal with Iran, and another 20 years to have uh, large numbers of Soviet aircraft, MiG-29s uh, and and Sukhoi-27s, in the Iranian Air Force inventory. So the Russians have been very, um, they have been marching very steadily towards their objective, which I believe they are now uh, on the verge of accomplishing, uh, which is to create an Iran-Russia China axis. This is, uh, you know, if you're looking at this in biblical terms, it's sort of the end times coalition, Iran, Russia, China, plus Turkey, if they can make their way into it. Um, They're a little bit on the sidelines right now. But uh, the Russians are getting very, very close to this. Uh, They are now talking about helping Iran once again, with long range of ballistic missiles. That's why, um, uh, you know, th- that that is part of the deal of these drones, the Iranian supply dr- drones to Russia and the Russian supply uh, missile technology back to Iran. Uh, the Chinese are the same way. They also have a long term strategic goal. The Belt and Roads Initiative is something that has been underway for well over a decade. Where they are trying to build, the Chinese are trying to build rail ties, sea ties, and land ties, railroads from China to Europe through uh, Pakistan and Iran, in particular, and and then all, all up into either Turkey or into the um, uh, the former uh, Soviet republics of Azerbaijan and 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 others. So they are playing a long game. China and Russia are playing a long game. We are playing tactics. We're playing, you know, every two years elections. And as a result of that, we lose.
1: Yeah, it's unfortunate because um, even uh, under the Obama administration, he was looking at uh, leaving the Middle East, but he wanted to concentrate on South America. Uh, Trump wanted to leave the Middle East, but he wanted to concentrate on India and pivot against China. And uh, it seems that... Uh, uh, the future um, uh, administration after the Biden administration may not be that interested in, in the Middle East region. Um, I mean, you can see even with the signing of the Green New Deal, right, it focuses away from oil. And uh, if that's the case, and uh, United States has enough oil right now to be able to basically uh, give a barrel of oil to every person in its population um, and with new technologies that they're trying to develop, winning off of their ties to the Middle East. Is it an issue that uh, Russia and China are just geographically closer to Iran, which may allow them to have more of an influence than the U.S., uh, given we're that far apart and also removed? Or is it that um, even with new technologies, new energy requirements out there being developed, that um, Iran will eventually have to be dealt with Given the fact that anything happens in the Middle East, it usually ends up uh, showing itself uh, in the United States. Unfortunately, as we know, in nine eleven, um, you know, it manifested here with the uh, murder of Americans on our soil. Um, as we're getting close to the end of this show, given the fact that you know all these issues, you have the historical uh, problems. Is there any way we can counter? a u.s or establish a long-term u.s policy for a region because it seems like there was never a u.s policy for a for iran uh, in the region that might be um workable given our current institutions because i don't think these institutions are going to change they're going to be the way they are we're going to have congress change every two years senate every six years presidency every four years is there anything that you think that you've seen that maybe is manageable for at least having a long-term relations with Iran for our benefit across administrations.
0: Uh, Yes, and it's called the Abraham Accords uh, set in motion by uh, the United States under President Trump. Uh, David Friedman, who was the ambassador, US ambassador to Israel, was instrumental. Uh, Jared Kushner, uh, who was working in the White House, the president's son-in-law was also instrumental. And uh, the, um, the leader of um, the United Arab Emirates was uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, who was also played a key, key role. Uh, we were pretty close at that point to opening up the Abraham Accords coalition uh, with Israel, so Arab states dealing openly, open diplomatic ties, economic ties with Israel. We were getting very close at the end of the Trump administration to bring Saudi Arabia in. Mohammed bin uh, Salman, the crown prince, was eager to join, but he wasn't quite ready at that point. He wanted to wait and see. And uh, Biden, once he came in, Stepped all over that. I mean, he quashed that with big boots. Uh, not only uh, by releasing a a pathetic CIA uh, woulda shoulda coulda memo uh, about Mohammed bin Salman and his personal involvement, which they said must have been it was it must have been involved in the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the Qatari backed. Uh, Washington Post occasional op-ed writer whose op-eds we learned, by the way, later on uh, from the New York Times, we learned that they were actually written by a Qatari lobbyist in Washington, D.C., because Khashoggi uh, couldn't write uh, English very well. But um, Biden immediately went to insult Mohammed bin Salman. He cut off uh, arms deliveries to Saudi Arabia in April of uh, 2021, stopped deliveries of Patriot missile batteries. uh, And it was It was just one of these, one of many strategic errors, huge strategic errors, in my view, of the Biden administration that set us back many years. Where we should be going is where Trump got us started by expanding the Abraham Accords. We should be working to bring Israel and Saudi Arabia together. When Israel and Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states are working together, the Iranians all of a sudden feel very small. And for the Iranian regime to feel very small is a very good thing. Right now, they have the wind in their sails. They feel that they are very big. They have Russia and China behind them. They are tying the Saudis up in this war in Yemen. Uh, They are blocking, um, uh, 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 they are putting pressure on Israel and they're essentially keeping the United States out of the Persian Gulf. You know, um, we, we only dared to bring an aircraft carrier in there recently to protect ships that were being um, uh, attacked by the Revolutionary Guards, and uh, that carrier did not for very long. Um, so the Iranians are now showing themselves as the masters of the Persian Gulf and beyond. We should be working with Saudi Arabia and the Gulf Arabs to counter that.
1: Well said. And uh, yes, even um, uh, under the current administration, Biden administration, if you talk to the State Department folks, they are very uh, happy and encouraged with uh, Abraham Accord. And they would say that the best thing that came out of uh, the Trump administration was the Abraham Accord's. It does kind of set the stage to where it empowers the Sunni, especially the Sunni lead Saudi Arabia right now. I know that uh, Turkey is trying to be that lead, uh, but uh, hopefully. Uh, Uh, Turkey will uh, continue to uh, waffle around, Um, and Iran being a leader of the Shia Islam uh, in the region, it may at least put them in a position where they're equal to each other, and in that way, as long as they're looking down each other's barrels, it gives us an opportunity to kind of manage that region to best our, our abilities. With that said, much appreciated, um, uh, Ken. I, I think it was a wonderful discussion. You've done a uh, job on covering the uh, region. Um, I do want to make sure that uh, our viewers know that uh, it is because of guests uh, like Kenneth R. Timmerman, who is uh, the executive director of the Foundation for Democracies in Iran. Uh, it is for them joining us uh, on this particular mission where the National Security arbor is the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America. Um, you got the last few seconds. Uh, anything that we need to uh, depart with uh, before we close out the show?
0: well again i just want to remind viewers they can uh, find me at kentimmerman.com. i put out a weekly uh, email that you can get uh for free i don't sell the email list just go to the website there'll be a pop-up you can put your name and your address in there uh and you'll get uh insights on where you can listen to me on the radio or on television as well but kentimmerman.com is the address
1: much appreciated ken with that said thank you for our listeners god bless you all